You are about to experience the Jerry Banfield Show podcast. These episodes are recorded live from my streams on Facebook or Twitch, where you can search for Jerry Banfield on either platform if you want to watch these while I'm gaming and ask any questions while I'm live to get what you want to know answered in a future episode just like this. You can also go to jerrybanfield.com and text me or WhatsApp me directly with any questions you'd like to ask or to share what's going on with you. If we've got an ad from a sponsor, that will play right after this intro. Otherwise, we'll jump straight into the episode. New episodes daily. Thank you for your support on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, without further ado, here's Jerry, Jerry Banfield Show. Thank you. All right, my name's Jerry. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you all for being here today. My sobriety date's the 22nd of April, 2014. I just had seven years a little while ago. And I'm here to share my story with you with the hope it can inspire you, whether you're just getting started or whether you've been going at this forever, longer than I've been alive, and you're looking to stay motivated with it. And what I'll start off with today is remembering about seven years ago, I had just came into AA and my mind was telling me I should just drink. I should just get it over with because there's no way I'm ever going to be able to stay sober for any period of time. And I'm glad I didn't listen to those thoughts because I've got over seven years today and seven years ago that looked impossible. Like why even try? Why try? Like just, just get it over with and drink again. Accept your fate. Now I hope that if any of you today are feeling like, you know, I can't do this, it's too hard, you will be amazed at what you can do. And what's awesome is once I've worked these steps and this process in my life on alcohol, I've looked at every other aspect of my life like, man, if I can see that kind of change getting sober, let's do this for my diet. Let's do this for my relationships. Let's do this for how I think, how I talk, everything. I'm so grateful today that I am an alcoholic because it's shown me how powerful I am with all of your help, with a higher power. That I'm not alone, I'm not hopeless, I'm not helpless. And that's how I felt when I came into AA. So I'll tell you my story here in chronological order. We'll start with how I got to being an alcoholic and then how I got sober. So I was born in Michigan in, uh, near Detroit in 1984, which puts me, I just turned 37 yesterday. I. Yes, thank you. I chose a father who was an alcoholic, a drug addict, and a gambler with some sex issues. And I chose a mother who was just getting out of an abusive first marriage, hadn't signed the divorce papers yet, and was looking to get pregnant with little me. But my dad was not on board with that. But I thought, these two parents, you two will be just perfect. I can help you, and you can get me into this world in a good place. My father got sober when I was six years old. He quit drugs when I was a year or two old. He got kicked out of the house where we were living. My mom had lost her job because of having me and my dad. And she was living with my father's parents. And my father got kicked out of his parents' house. So when I was a baby, my dad wasn't around until my mom went in the army at about a year old. My dad said he was going to get sober with his aunt and uncle, 
And my mom flies down to Texas, got little me ready to go for the army and have a fresh start. And my dad has a couple of beers to celebrate and show her how good he's doing. And it, it, was, it was a wild ride from there. My dad got into all kinds of things with his drinking. And he finally had his moment when I was about five years old. There were men at work. My mom was an officer in the army in Japan at the time. And there were a lot of men, not a lot of women there. Men were lining up to be with my mother at work. My father was just, you know, going down the drain. And he was at, he was selling at this market they had. And my kindergarten teacher came by his stand to buy something when he had a hangover. And just, you know, he'd had 40 rum and cokes the night before and just was looking like a bag of assholes. And my kindergarten teacher, Miss Bone gave him this disgusted look for a moment. Like, you know, like, it's like she could really see him. And for some reason, after all my father had been through, suicide attempts and all the insane things he'd been through in his life, for some reason, that really got to him. And he never drank again after that. And he passed away in 2014. And I saw my father drink and smash things and the insanity of his drinking. And I saw the next morning when he'd be so sorry and take a shopping to go buy a new clock to replace the clock he smashed the night before. And then I saw him sober. No more mornings where he was sorry and let's take you all out to eat. It was just woo, right on edge. You spill a glass of milk, what the fuck did you do? You know, Jesus Christ, Gerald. And he just snap. And, you know, you never knew when dad was going to go off like a bomb. And, you know, he never went, he, he didn't like Alcoholics Anonymous. He had went when he was in the mental hospital earlier in his life, and he got a bad opinion of it. And he just got sober just doing it on his own somehow and stayed sober. He stayed at home and was there for me every day. My mom went and worked, so my father, every day when I got home from school, my dad was there. He made dinner. He took care of everything. And my dad is one of the most positive forces in my life. My dad kept me completely out of trouble until I was 18 and completely sane when it came to alcohol. I even went to a few parties in high school and I'm like, I don't want any of that alcohol shit. Like, I remember how my dad was. I don't want to be like that. And I, I remember taking a top secret security clearance to go to work with my mom for an internship. And it asked all these questions. Have you ever smoked weed? Have you drank alcohol? And all these, have you done all these things? And I put no, no, just no after no. And I'm like, who does all this dumb shit? Who gets into all this trouble? And then I went to college. My parents were up in Virginia. And I went to college at the University of South Carolina because long story short, that was the best scholarship I could get. And just a little bit of time away from that loving, protective atmosphere at home. And uh, my mind started to change about a lot of things. And I started to progressively let out and see how bad I could act. And the first thing I noticed, I made it through the first two-thirds of freshman year without drinking, saying things like, I don't need alcohol to have fun. In fact, I'd be the DD and act dumber than my roommates at the party because I knew people are drinking. I'm like, I can get away with really letting it out right now. This is awesome. And then I can just get in the car sober and drive home. Like, this is great. I don't need alcohol. There was this girl down the hall and I used to think, like, sober, she is such a bitch. Like, she's just not fun, she's not friendly, and she gets a few drinks in her, and all of a sudden, she's awesome. 
And I don't know what happened, but at some point, it, I realized I was looking in a mirror like, damn, that's how I am. Like, I'm a dick normally. <laughs> like, no wonder people don't want to hang out with me. I'm not fun. So I had a girl I was trying to hook up with that I'd failed a bunch of attempts to hook up with girls sober. For some reason, my sober mindset and their drunk mindset didn't work well together. And I thought, you know what? I just need to get a few beers in myself and I'll be more fun. And I got some Miller High Lifes. And I knew exactly who to ask to go to the gas station. Even though I hadn't drank, it's like I'd been keeping an eye on all these things. And as soon as I made the decision, I know who to go to. And I, got a, I drank two and a half Miller High Lifes, had this girl over my friend had already hooked up with. And you know, it seemed like at that point, losing my virginity was like the biggest deal. And after two and a half beers, I didn't care about that anymore. I felt so damn good. I just laid on the bed. Like, no, I'm like, oh, this is awesome, like, euphoria. Like, this is a feeling I've been looking for. I can't wait to do this again. And, yeah, the girl's like, you know, she's confused as to why I didn't seem interested in her anymore after two and a half beers. It's like, well, I don't need you. I've got alcohol. And that, that's continued to progress. The next time I plotted on going to this party and I got hammered and I had the, like, two weeks later, I just drank a bunch. I'm like, if two and a half beers was that good, let's really put it down at this party and see what happens. And I did. I drank a bunch of beers, a bunch of shots, and it was all good until 2 a.m. when it all came up. And the room started spinning and I was as miserable physically as I'd ever been in my whole life. I had the worst hangover still that I've ever had. I threw up. I didn't know all these little hangover remedies like drink water and try and get some food down and you know take several Advil if you can choke those down. I just went through this hellacious hangover. It was Easter in 2003 and I remember just wishing I was back home with my parents and had my Easter basket and just crying in my dorm room bed. And on the cable network they had Pay It Forward on with Jodie Foster. And I'm like, it was as if the universe was trying to tell me something. And I'm like, I, it's like I had to keep watching it. I'm like, I'm not like that at all. That has nothing, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not hiding liquor bottles. I just, have a, I'm having a hangover. And at the time, I thought I'll never do this again. This is utterly miserable. It's nothing could be worse this amount of pain. And I'm not sure what exactly happened. Because it took two days to feel better. And after I felt better, I started to get this idea in my head, you know, maybe if I just don't drink that much, I can have the fun without the consequences. And I did that for most of a year. I would mostly just have three or four, five or six drinks, cut it off. I'm like, all right, I want to have the fun without the consequences, fun without the consequences. And I did. I'd go to a party, have a few drinks. I'm like, okay, that's it. Don't want to get sick. And then, I don't know, again, when it flipped, at some point I, I got drunk with my friend's sophomore year, and all of a sudden it was, fuck it, let's get drunk all the time, screw the consequences. I'll take the hangover. It's worth the fun times I'm having. And from there, it was, it was a progression downhill. When I went to college, I felt pretty good about myself. I hadn't done like anything what you might think of as wrong, although I, I really didn't like my sex you know, parts, and I felt really ashamed about that and felt really frustrated. That was, that was kind of the one thing that made me hate life, was like trying to find 
a girl and dealing with my own desires. Like, other than that, my whole life, my mind was pretty good. The more I drank, the more I kept picking up all these other things, like reasons I hate myself. And it'd be, you know, it'd be a drunken night of doing something stupid. Like, I'd gamble hundreds of dollars away and wake up the next day, like, you know, in college, that was, that was weeks worth of money. Just disgusted with myself, like, I'm such a fucking idiot. Like, how could I do that? I'd, I'd email the poker stars and tell them, I'm like, you know, I got a gambling issue. Please ban me from the website. And then I'd go create an account on somebody else's computer. The next day, I'd be doing, I'd get my bank account banned. And it's like my life suddenly just went from where I kind of was guiding it and had some kind of control to almost like it was just flowing and I didn't get to say what I did anymore. Like I'd make a decision, like I'm never gonna gamble again. And then I'd have a drink, I'd set up another account, start gambling again, wake up the next day like, not again. You know, this time is $500. Like Jesus, you know, that's, that's a month of my money. Like I'm fucked now. <laughs> like what am I gonna do for money this month? I just lost it all. And like one night senior year, I like the, the night I lost the 500, I mean, I, I got so mad, I just smashed my whole dorm room apart. I mean, I broke the keys off the keyboard, I picked things up, I threw it all over, I just smacked everything I could smack, punched. I woke up the next morning, like the lights are still on, there's just blood everywhere, because I cut my hand somewhere and just, I'm like, I'm, it's, I'm not waking up to this shit right now. I just try and desperately go back to sleep, wake up again, like, oh my God. And every time I did that, it's like I dug myself in a deeper hole. Now, I don't get to drink just to have fun. Now I got to drink just to feel normal. Because I'm starting to hate myself so much that I don't even want to deal with myself sober anymore. And I started drinking by the end of senior year, I was drinking every day. I'd have usually several shots in a minimum, and I'd often get drunk, you know, at least half the week. So I was, and I was selling liquor to the freshmen too, in my dorm room. And I'd bring cases of handles in and just, I'd sell it to them and they'd get in shit and I'd make sure they didn't squeal on me. And, you know, I progressively kept feeling worse. And there were some nights that really scare me, nights where, you know, I was on the edge of doing serious harm to someone, often for no reason other than it's 3 a.m. and everybody's asleep and, you know, somebody needs to die now. And you'd, you'd look at me today and think, that's, that's, I don't see how that's possible. And yet, you see me, you know, 15 years ago in college, you'd be scared and confused. Like, why is this young man who's had such a nice upbringing, you know, hate himself so much and on the edge of violence? And from there, things got even more interesting. I really wanted to understand. I felt like there was something wrong inside of me. And I thought I could be clever about it by going into criminal justice for my major and kind of, if I could figure out what's wrong with other people, I could discreetly figure out what's wrong with me without anybody knowing about it. So I went into criminal justice, and I ended up being a correction officer in prison. And I was in with the juveniles, in with the murderers, the rapists. You know, I was in with the worst ones in, in the whole prison. And it really struck me, like, the only difference between you and these kids is that you were loved growing up. These kids weren't. Now you came into a nice situation, these kids came into a nasty situation. Like, but, but for the grace of God, I'd be in here and they'd be working here instead of living here. 
and it in that prison i was going in drinking before work because i needed some relief and i couldn't even stand going to work and i saw other people that come in they'd have they'd be drunk when they came in the night shift and i thought hell if they can get drunk i can have five beers before i come in and those night shifts suck because there's nothing like sitting in prison feeling your buzz wear off and knowing you can't get any more until you get off and you got to deal with these kids when they wake up first thing in the morning and then your co-workers too i mean the co-workers are as bad as the kids and i made it out of that prison just because i got so physically sick with mono i couldn't keep working there i took several weeks off got sober pulled my life back together as by this point i'd done that a few times when things got bad enough i'd think uh-oh I better get sober for a while and fix this mess up before I go all the way down the drain. And uh, the last three months working at that prison, I was sober. It was like a completely different work experience than when I worked there drinking. I was getting along with these kids. Some of the kids were actually starting to respect me and look up to me. And as, as soon as I got out of there and got a job as a police officer, I started drinking again because I thought, you know what? I'm not that bad. I just needed, you know, that corrections was rough. I just needed to take some time off. I'm going to drink reasonably now. I can go out with my friends now. I'm going to behave better this time. And again, same thing. Started drinking, blowing my girlfriend off. She goes to leave me. I get suicidal. And all of a sudden, I need to get sober again. I, I can't drink now or I'm going to kill myself because... You know, if I, I'm barely staying alive sober, and if I get drunk right after she cheated on me and left me, then I'm probably going to actually do it. That lasted for three months until I found a, a new girl to keep me company, and then I thought, well, I'm over her. I can drink again. I won't kill myself now. <laughs> and the cycle repeated again. I ended up I got another job. I got my dream police job working at the university where I was an undergrad student there. It was one of the highest paying police jobs in town. Very nice work too. The only real, two real downsides, micromanagement and boredom. If you can handle those two things, that was the perfect police job for you. And I could. And I managed to stir up all kinds of shit at that police department. At first, there were no issues. I would just drink with my friends. But the longer I kept working there, I had never worked a night shift and really went hard on my drinking before since corrections and it got real scary like blowing my whole thousand dollars at the strip club multiple times drunk driving all over town like literally doing the same things i'd arrest somebody for drunk driving at work the next night i'd be driving just like them off duty drinking one night i was in the strip club in columbia and i'd went out with a couple other officers had my gun on me and the stripper's like dancing all up on my leg. She's like, is that a gun? I'm like, no, it's my wallet. You know, I'm like slipping it around in my back. I'm like, shit, how'd she know? And I'm like walking in the bathroom, the strip club. My gun falls out on the floor in the middle of the bathroom. I'm like, Jesus Christ. You know, th these are just things I took for granted. Like, this is just shit that happens when I drink, you know? And uh, there, another night I'm out at the bar and uh, there's, thankfully I left the gun in the car this time. A girl walks by and spills a beer all over my shirt, which was not a nice shirt by any means. It was some cheap ass shirt that was not working to pick girls up. And this, you know, I start in on her right away. Like, you dumb bitch, what the fuck are you doing, you know? And, 
And this guy stands up for her right next to me. And within five minutes, I'm telling him, I'm going out in my car to get my gun. Come out of this bar and I'll shoot you. And I'm sitting in my car waiting for this guy. I'm like, come on, fucker. Come on. And, and thankfully, he stays in the bar or leaves out a back door. And I have kind of some sanity come over me. And it's like, why don't you take your dumb ass home? And I go home. I wake up the next day like, Jesus. Like, I just told this guy I was going to shoot him. Like, what if he sees me at work one day? Oh, that's the guy who said he was going to shoot me. Shit. And I kept racking more, all kinds of things like that up. And, well, by after three years total in corrections and law enforcement, a year and a half at this department, I, I make my best arrest. I find this suspect they've been looking for forever. I go the extra mile, locate him. They call me back to headquarters. I think I'm going to get a, a celebration here. They're going to all thank me for my good police work. And I, I come back to headquarters, walking in triumphant, and like eight officers jump out of nowhere and grab a hold of me, tell me to, you know, stay still. We're going to take all your weapons and you're going to talk with us. And I'm thinking this whole time I've got away with all the stuff I've done while I was been drinking off duty. And I was shocked at all the things they did know about, the Facebook messages I'd sent that scared people that somebody knew I was a cop and they reported me to the department over that. I'd had little inklings of these things, like out at the bar with my friends, hearing conversations, but I was shocked at the list of things they'd amassed. And they said, what are we going to do about this? And I'm like, I'll just quit. And they're like, good, that'll make it simple for all of us. I moved home with my parents, and my dad says, boy, do you think this had anything to do with your drinking? Are you going to quit? And I'm like, no, no. It was that police department. The pol they were crazy there. And, you know, they, they made, I mean, some of the things that were complained about, you know, the complaints were a little over the top of what I think really happened. Others were spot on. But I'm like, no, it's this department. It was that crazy lifestyle. I'm going to go to graduate school. I'm going to settle down. I'm going to find a nice woman. And I'm going to drink reasonably. And my, dad, my parents said, well, that's great. No drinking while you live with us. And I was able to go most of the time with my parents in 2009, 2010 without drinking and be pretty happy most of the time. I lost weight, started to feel good about myself, and uh, they shipped me off to, I shipped myself off to grad school in Tampa and at USF, and I felt like I'd had a, a fresh reset. Like, I can drink, I can enjoy life, I can date, like, my life is great. But there just kept being these weird things happening. Like, I'd, I'd get out at three in the morning and, you know, I'd have my gun. I'm like, maybe I'll find something to shoot right now. You know, just insane shit like that. And I'm lucky at all the things I almost did that I didn't do. And I'm glad for those things today because I have empathy and compassion for somebody who actually did do something, you know, murder. And, you know, I can have compassion for about anything anybody's done because of all the things I've almost done. And all the times I was in a really bad spot, murderous rage, and Nobody came across my path, and I was able to just, you know, go back, to, go back into my room, go to sleep, and nothing bad happened. And then I met my wife, and I thought, okay, I'd set this thing up in my mind. If I just had the right woman and you know, a nice job, and if, I, if my life was all just right, I would have no problems. And I thought, once I move in with my wife, I'm going to stop all this dumb shit. There's not going to be all these drinking escapades and 
you know, spending all this money at strip clubs and there's not going to be all that. And I moved in with her and I was extremely disappointed to see that nothing changed on my part. And it was in fact shocked at how my behavior looked from her point of view. Because what to me didn't look that bad, like, yeah, I stayed up all night screaming at the TV while I played Call of Duty. Like that to me seemed like a good night of my drinking. Like that was about as good as it got. No, you know, nothing crazy happened. To her, that was totally unacceptable. I'm like, I could see like, wow, I'm a lot worse than I think I am. Like my idea of what's reasonable is her idea of insane. So I, I told her we, we had a, a real rough night of yelling and screaming. Another night of me like walking around the apartment looking for something to shoot. And thankfully she rescued me again. And everything that, you know, everything, like all the wildlife hid. It's like, oh shit, you know, let's get out of the way here. And uh, I woke up the next day like, holy shit, dude, I'm, I'm fucked up. Like, I can't ever drink. This is, this is real bad. So I told her, I swore, I said, I swear to God, I'll never, ever drink again. And I'll, I'll, I'll be sober. And this was in 2012. We'd been dating like a, less than a year. And end of 2011. So then we have my friend's wedding that comes up. And I go to it. I don't go to his bachelor party. I go to his wedding and I feel sorry for myself. I'm like, poor little Jerry can't drink. This is so depressing. All my friends are having fun. I'm missing out. And I cried and I bitched and it was an awful wedding. And then we took a trip for Christmas. And on some um, subconscious level, I plotted a relapse. I plotted 10 days away from my wife during Christmas, which she was remarkably gracious about. I plotted that right at my weakest point, I would go visit my friends I really like to drink with. And sure enough, for Christmas, they got me a bottle of my favorite strawberry Smirnoff 70 proof vodka. And I remember calling my wife the next day on the phone after nothing bad happened. I mean, you know, except for the usual hangover I endured. I remember calling her on the phone crying, driving back from Columbia, South Carolina to Sarasota, Florida. Like, you know, I'm sorry, I'll never do this again. I'm so stupid. And I got back and I stayed sober for five months. That was the longest I'd been sober since I started drinking. No meetings, no other kind of change. Just focus on my work, focus on my school. And uh, man, after five months, I somehow talked myself into, you know, the real issue was drinking and having fights with my wife. So if I can just go to Columbia to hang out with my friends, then I can drink there without causing problems in my marriage. And I told my wife this great plan, and she said, well, if it doesn't work, don't come back to me crying about it. And I was like, it's, it's going to go great. I, like, in my mind, this was her supporting me. And I called my dad up when I was sober, right before I drank. And my dad was just beside himself. Come, you've been doing so good. What are you doing? You know, why are you doing this? And, you know, try something else. And can't you just hang out with your friends without drinking? I just, I, I didn't get it. I'm like, Dad, this is good for me. Don't you understand? Like, I've been really behaving. I really need to just let it out. And I drank with my friends at a great weekend. Nothing bad happened. I'm like, awesome. I can make this a regular thing. So I started driving eight hours to Columbia, South Carolina to drink. For several months, I'd go like once a month. And then 
in about October, I thought, well, it seems kind of stupid to drive eight hours to go drink. I might get in an accident or something. I might you know, hurt myself. It's expensive. I might as well just drink at home and control myself. And it's like after a year, all the lessons had been forgotten, and all of a sudden I'm back drinking at home again. And from there, it just went straight downhill. At first, it was fine from my point of view. From my wife's point of view, it was completely unacceptable the whole time and pushed her idea of how far unacceptable could get. But from my view, staying up late, getting yelling at the TV, not a big deal. And then my dad got sick and died. And that's when things really went to a whole new level. All of a sudden, drinking was only bringing up the devil every time. And now I didn't feel like I had any choice at all. Like, I have to drink whether I want to stay sober or not. There was another wedding, more bachelor parties with my friends, more shame, you know, more throwing a bunch of money at the strip club, spending a whole bunch of money on their dinners. And my wife's just like, what are you doing the whole time, you know? Like, why? She, one night I had six drinks. And she, cut, she, she told me, that's enough, stop. And I'm like, well, it, this doesn't even count now. Like, this doesn't even count that I had a night of drinking. Like, now I need to get drunk tomorrow night. Like, I was going to be sober tomorrow. She's like, I don't understand how six drinks isn't enough. I'm like, that's, that's not even half of where we were going tonight. And finally, after my dad died... I had a few really rough nights just at home screaming. You know, one night I had a, my dad, his dad, and his dad, who were all alcoholics and all died, all appeared to me, and I screamed at them for an hour at 5 in the morning. Fuck you. You know, you weren't there. You just, oh, my God, just screamed at them for an hour. My wife thought I was taking some other kind of drugs, but I'm like, no, this is just what happens when I drink a lot sometimes, you know? I don't need anything else to get that crazy. And then... Uh, I, would, I was trying at that point to stay sober, and by the end of April 2014, I wasn't even telling anybody when I was trying to get sober. Like, I'd, I'd say in my head, I'm going to get sober, but I wouldn't tell anybody about it, because I didn't want to have to tell them I was relapsing. So I'd make it a day, I'd make it two or three days. And it kept, I kept having this vision in my head of how my life was going to go, that while at this point I'd somehow been faithful to my wife, I realized one night while I'm drinking, I'm going to be unfaithful to my wife. I'm going to go down to one of these Asian massage parlors. There were a bunch of them. We lived near the airport. And I could see that one night I was going to do that, and then I was going to feel so bad, I was going to shoot myself rather than deal with it. Because I'd already nearly done that a bunch of times over less egregious violations. And I realized that's where I was going, and there was no choice. Like, clearly, the only way out of that was to get sober. And clearly, I couldn't do that. The last night I drank was April 21st, 2014. Started out like any other night. I mean, I went to work, went to the gym, like I'm being productive today. I, you know, I did my good, now I can drink. And I drank all afternoon and all evening till like 5 in the morning. I played a whole bunch of Call of Duty zombies and just drank vodka and Diet Dr. Thunder. You know, it's like two shots a cup, just you know, putting one or two of those down an hour all night. And my wife had finally had enough. She's like, I can't be here with you drinking anymore. And I said, that's fine. Go. I don't care. She's like, I'm going to go stay with my parents. I'm like, that's fine. 
And then I remember talking to my friend about, do you ever think about being unfaithful to your wife? And he was kind of horrified with that whole line of discussion. And then to top the end of the night off, I found a website in China that I could use my credit card to put $500 on and gamble. And I hadn't gambled online in a, since 2006, and I thought, I'll never do that again. And I thank God I gambled that night, because that, that removed any illusion that I had any amount of control at all. I woke up the next day, I threw up blood. I, I realized I lost $500 when it was on credit card. Like, I'd be paying interest on that for months. I didn't have $500 to be pissing away. And my wife said she was going to leave, and I said, okay. I'm like, holy shit. Like, I can see where this is going, and I can't stop it. Like, I, I've proven I can't get sober. No matter what I say, no matter what I do, I'm going to drink again. And that got me desperate enough to, to go to God and be like, God, please, I'll do anything, anything to get sober. And I had a little thought that came after that. The thought was, well, maybe going to one of those AA meetings would be a part of the anything you just offered. And that seemed pretty okay to me. I'm like, that's not too bad. I was imagining it'd be worse. Like, I didn't know what, you know, when you offer anything, you don't know what you're going to get. I'm like, that doesn't seem too bad. I can do that. So I scheduled a meeting, like, the next week to go to. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to this meeting, and I'm sure I can stay sober until that meeting. And I planned it because my dad's memorial was that weekend. We were driving to Mississippi, and I realized the day after I come back, that's either a drink or you're going to get drunk or go to AA. Like, there's no other options. You're not going to just stay at home and be sober somehow. Like, that's your day to go to AA. So I went to AA, and I remember walking in the meeting. I was scared, and I felt like a total failure. Like, you know, I've really blown my life up here. I come into AA, and I didn't know what to expect. And I walked in, the first impression, like, why are all these people so happy? It felt like walking into a family, except I didn't belong. All these people are happy and shaking hands and hugging. I'm like, the hell is this? Like, this is not what I expected. I expected more like the prison environment I worked in. And this is like, oh, this is great. I feel at home here. And I sat down and they asked if anybody's new. And I stood up and shared for like five minutes before they even, you know, did hardly anything in the meeting. And now I smile when anybody does that. I'm like, hey, there I am. That guy's just like me. And I don't know what anybody said at the meeting. I know they suggested the chairperson, Ruth. She said, you ought to get some phone numbers. And I said, no thanks. Because in my mind, what are these creepy ass people going to do with my phone number? You know, like, I don't know any of you. I don't trust you. You're going to sell my phone number or be wanting shit from me? Like, that's, no, I'm not giving my phone number. She, and she, Ruth said, she's like, you know, I did it that way a lot of times, and it didn't work so well for me. And I'm like... All right, well, I'll put my name in the book. I'm not putting my phone number with it, but I'll put my name in the membership book that I'm a member of this group. And I don't know what happened, but I walked out to the car after the Lord's Prayer and put my name in the membership book, and I, I finally I felt better. And I cried, and I felt like my dad who'd passed away four months ago, like that I could, I could finally clearly feel my dad. And it's like I could feel all those prayers people had said for me, too, that as long as I kept them all away and I'm not interested and don't want it, I couldn't. But once, you know, my wife all the night, she'd prayed for me and my mom, and I could feel all of it. And I just cried in the car, and I'm like, thank you. This is, thank you. 
Thank you. I'll come back. I'll definitely come back. So I came back two days later, and in my mind, I said, well, I drink like two days a week. I'll go to two meetings a week. That'll work. When, you know, obviously that was a... Uh, by drink two days a week, I meant like I'd drink from noon till four to eight in the morning, have a god-awful hangover the next day, have one day sober, then do it all over again, and, you know, consider myself functioning. Like, I'm getting my work done, I'm spending time with my wife, you know, I'm not, I'm going to the gym. And the key thing I suggest when sponsoring and people are like, well, how many meetings should I go to? I'm like, well, you'll know if you're not going to enough. And for me, going to two meetings was enough for the first two months. Because two meetings versus zero is a big difference. And I actually bought the book after two months to come into AA. I couldn't believe it took that long. I looked on my Amazon. Two months after I came to my first meeting, I bought the book. And then I actually started reading it at some point after that too. But after about 90 days, I was in the middle of the insanity. See, when I came in, I realized, okay, I'm powerless over alcohol. If I have even a sip of it, I don't know if I'm going to have my definition of a good night where I just scream at the TV or a bad night where I almost land in prison. Like, that's powerless. You don't know what kind of night you're going to have. That's powerless. You can't decide to quit. That's powerless. But I didn't get the other half of the step, that our lives had become unmanageable, and especially our sober lives, that without a drink in me, there are some serious mental and emotional issues going on. They're so bad that I think having a drink is the best thing I could do with my day. Sober. And that's what, after about 90 days, was shocking me. I'm going to AA. I'm telling everybody else sober I am. I'm, I'm giving my wife the chapter to the wives. I'm like, this isn't for me. This is for you to read. So you read this, and you might want to consider going to Al-Anon in case I relapse. I mean, this is the state I was in after 90 days. And I, my wife would be at work because I worked at home with my own business and all day. Actually, the first couple of months, I had some kind of protection from the obsession was removed. You know, I, I wished and hoped and felt bad for myself still that I couldn't drink, but I wasn't obsessed with having a drink until July 4th, when I'd been sober just over two months. A week before, my parents had this dog, still do, a little dachshund, and he was just barking at me and barking at me and barking at me, and I finally snapped. That dog called me out, and I'm like, what the fuck up? And even louder than that, at the dog. And all of a sudden, it was like the beat dropped, and Laura's whole family turns to look at me, and I'm like, shit, y'all are assholes. Y'all are all assholes right now. Like, instead of, like, uh, deep down, I felt like, oh, shit, they just saw me. Now, never mind, they'd seen me, you know, coming over, crying, drinking, a mess, but they'd seen me sober, scream at their dog. Like, there was no, oh, I was drunk, like... So instead of owning what I did, I set this story up that, you know, your family's assholes, and I don't want to be around them. And on July 4th, Laura's like, all right, I'm going to spend July 4th with my family. I'm like, nah, I don't think your family's good for my sobriety. You know, or some dumb shit like that. You know, I don't, your family hasn't been being very nice to me lately. When really, her family had been telling her, don't leave so quick. Her mom, she called, Laura called her mom. The reason she didn't leave, I found out, 
The reason Laura didn't leave that last night I drank is because her mom told her. She called her mom and her mom said, you know, you don't just leave your husband when he's having a little bit of a hard time and come stay with your parents. And I'm like, damn. I was so moved when I found out about that. Because I'm like, I can't imagine telling my daughter that. I'd have been like, fuck him, come on home. Yeah, let's, I'll, help you, I'll help you get rid of him, you know? And this is the family I said, you know, y'all are assholes. And as soon as Laura left, the obsession to drink just crushed me. It came out of nowhere. I'm like, I'm sober, I'm doing, oh God, I want to drink. And I could drink all day. She's going to be out of town. She deserves this. I need this. And all of a sudden, all these things people said in meetings, all, you know, I thought, oh, I came to AA, I'm fixed, you know? Like, you see a lot of people that come in, they think just by sitting in a few meetings, they're fixed. And that, I'm like, oh shit, not only am I not fixed, it doesn't seem like anything's changed. If anything, I'm worse. I'm worse than when I came in because I haven't drank in a few months. I know drinking's poison. I know it's just like committing suicide and I still want to do it anyway. God, help me, please. And from there on, there, I don't know how long it was, a week or two weeks, there was the longest, longest few weeks of my life. The entire day, all day, every day was like this. God, please, I'll do anything to stay sober. But my wife's really been being a bitch, so she's at work. I think now would be a good time for me to drink. I'm going to go to the liquor store, and I'll get some vodka, and I'll, get some, I'll go to Walmart. God, please, I want to stay sober. Please, I really mean it. But what could I just drink? Maybe I can just drink today. Like, oh, it was miserable. Every single thing. Like, I had personal training scheduled, and... I'm like, I can't go to personal training. I'm going to go to the liquor store. You know, I'll just screw personal training. Let's just go to the liquor store right now. Well, why don't I go to personal training, and then I'll decide afterwards if I go to the liquor store. No, because if you go to personal training, after you've worked out, you're going to feel better, and you're not going to want to go to the liquor store. So just go to the liquor store now. God, please help me. All right, but if I, all right, let's just, let's just get in the car, because then we can go to personal training or the liquor store. Either one. Either way, though, we need to get out of this house. And at some points, I literally just stood in my house. I just, I'm like, I'm safe right here, right now. I can't drink. I'm just going to stand here because I know I'm not going to hurt myself or do anything stupid. And like every single little action I'd take, I'm like, is this going to get me closer to a drink or farther away? And meanwhile, I'm not going to extra meetings. Like I'm, I got my two meetings a week and I'm battling. And finally, at one of the meetings, I raised my hand and I got honest. They asked, is anybody having trouble staying away from a drink today? And that used to seem like a joke when I first came to meetings. I'm like, oh, we're all cured. We came to AA, you know, of course we're all good. And then it was my turn. I'm like, yeah, I've been, I'm like, and they're like, Jerry, I'm like, I'm Jerry, I'm alcoholic, and I've wanted to drink all day really bad. I barely got to this meeting today, and I'm going to drink tomorrow. I, you all said don't drink today, you can drink tomorrow. I'm going to drink tomorrow. I just wanted to let you all know. Like, this was Thursday, and I'm planning in my mind I'm going to get drunk tomorrow, but i got to tell them, since I'm a member of this group, I'm going to tell them, and then I can drink the next day. And again, I don't know if anybody said anything in particular, but I, I got this little feeling of hope that it didn't have to be a, a miserable, you know, drink yourself to death kind of life, that maybe something else was possible. I started to believe something, something could restore me to sanity. I had no idea what it was, but I started to believe, you know what, if 
these people are sober. And they, they communicated to me that they'd been where I'd been. I knew that they understood what I was going through. And I'm like, if, and I could see they weren't obsessed with a drink. And I thought, you know, maybe if that's possible for them, it can be possible for me. And I just kept getting through one day at a time. And I, I finally, the last day I had the obsession to drink, I, I, I'm like, I need to relax. I need to relax. I'm so stressed out. My mind is just going constantly. I'm so miserable. I have to relax. Like, this is a real big problem. I got to find a way to relax. And my mind's like, drink, drink, drink. You know that'll work. Drink, drink, drink. And I'm like, yeah, that might work, but I think I'm going to kill myself if I drink. And I, I'm like, God, please help. And I remembered this lady at a meeting. She said, oh, I just go get a massage and it's so nice. And I just relax and I feel leaves so refreshed. And at the time when I was listening to her, you know, my mind said something like, this dumb bitch probably gets played with or something, you know? Like, that's because I'd watched Sex in the City and Samantha said that therapists were going down on clients. So, like, in my mind, that's what happens on a massage. And uh, therefore, in my mind, I'm like, I can't go get a massage. They're going to give me a hand job, you know? Like, I, I can't do that. And... Uh, then I just kept praying to stay sober and I finally negotiated to go to the parking lot where there was a massage envy and a Publix liquors because I figured either way I'm gonna get some relief and they are literally right next to each other and I'm in my car I'm looking at both of them like all right I know and I finally was really honest with myself I looked at the Publix liquors and I'm like I am terrified to go in there right now I know if I go in there, I've got misery that I can't even comprehend. Like, I know my wife's leaving. I know I'm ending my life. If I go in there, that's what happens. And I looked at the massage envy, and I felt the same way about it. I'm like, well, that's dumb. I know why I'm afraid to go into Publix Liquors. Well, why am I terrified to go into massage envy? Like, how bad is it going to be in there? You know, it's going to cost $70 or something. I'm sure I can set boundaries. Like, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go do the next right thing, like people said. And I'm terrified to go in this massage envy, but I'm not going to sit in this parking lot and suffer. I'm not going to go in that liquor store. I'm going to take this lady's suggestion that she said works for her, and maybe it'll work for me. So I go in there, again, scared shitless, don't know what I'm walking into. And at some point during the massage, my mind stopped, and I really completely relaxed. And I got three really clear thoughts that came into my head. And one of, the first one was, you're going to ask Tony to be your sponsor. Because I had no sponsor at this point. And this was not the sponsor you would have picked out for me. Like this, this man was a construction worker who fell off a three-story construction building, caved part of his head in, and was considered mentally handicapped. But that's what the, I had a very clear voice that was not my own thoughts that came into my head and said, you're going to ask Tony to be your sponsor. You're going to read that book, and you're going to go to five meetings a week. And I'm like, holy shit. Was that you, God? Like, wow. Like, maybe all this stuff people are saying in these meetings is true. And I just felt this reassurance. Like, there is some power greater than me that's looking out for me, that is here to guide me if I will listen to it. And I, 
followed those exact instructions immediately. I immediately, I'm like, okay, which five days a week can I go to meetings? Uh, let me ask Tony to be my sponsor. Let me finish this book that I've started, the Alcoholics Anonymous book. And the best part about Tony was Tony kept things ultra simple for me, which a complicated motherfucker like me, that's what I needed. Somebody, he said, God loves you. That was pretty much all he said. And I felt safe doing my, starting my fifth step with him because the way my mind rationalized it said, look, he's mentally disabled. You can tell him whatever you want to. And if he tells anybody, nobody's going to believe him anyway. <laughs> and that's exactly what I needed because I was so paranoid about telling anybody any of these things. And one of those murderous rage nights came up. You know, I had written an inventory of my life. I'd written pretty much like I've told you here. I just shared and at one point in the first 90 days or so, I just felt like I really needed to write one day. I, I don't remember sitting down thinking I'm gonna do the four step. I just remember I need to write an honest story of my life, like where nothing was omitted, where all the most relevant and emotionally powerful things were included, you know, like suicide attempts, like, you know, insanity at work and all my drinking stuff. And I wrote all that out. And then I was sitting in a meeting one day and one of these nights that I have described in here already that I swore I'd never tell anybody about because it was proof of how awful I am. It came up and I realized you got two options. You're going to tell your sponsor this right now or you're going to go get drunk. I'm like, shit, okay, well, I'll do my fist step. And I felt so vulnerable. And the only reason I felt safe is because he was mentally handicapped. I'm like, it's got to be safe to tell him. And I told him, and he said, God loves you. I'll pray for you. He was not moved at all by what I said. And that's exactly the response I needed. And the same thing happened a few days, maybe a few week or a few weeks later. I thought, good, I did the fifth step. I'm rolling right through these steps. Oh, no. Another day, I'm sitting there, and my grand sponsor, Ty, who's passed on, he shared some really inappropriate joke that I was the only one who laughed at it, and I laughed at it really loud. And then I got a flood of buried and repressed memories from childhood and all kinds of things that, you know, from adulthood also that I hadn't shared or uncovered so far. And again, I could see your op my options. I'm going to go get drunk, I'm, like, right after this meeting. Like, I'm not going to even go home. I'm going to go straight to the liquor store after these meetings. These thoughts are so horrible. I need to immediately do something about these thoughts. Or I'm going to talk to Ty right now and do my, you know, um, in-depth fifth step. And Ty was dying of cancer at the time, and I walked up to him. I said, Ty, I'd like to talk to you. And he said, no, I'm fine. He thought I was trying to cheer him up. Just, and I'm like, Ty, I want to do a fifth step right now. And he said, okay, let's go. And he, he sat down with me in the back, and... I laid everything out with him like I had never laid it out with anybody before. I described all the worst memories that came up in my mind in the, the opposite of minimizing. Like I made them look the worst possible way you can imagine. And I laid them all out on Ty. And Ty's like, let me tell you about my life. And my God, he told me about his life. And his, his life bothered me for days. The things he'd been through, especially as a child, I'm like, that shouldn't even be possible. That is so horrible. And his perspective left me feeling like, you know what? I'm okay. 
I'm okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with me. In fact, I've had an, a fairly ordinary human experience. And after that, I've repeated that process a bunch of times with counselors, hypnotherapists, another sponsor, people that aren't even my sponsor. And my life has just gotten so much better and it keeps getting even better. Like I'm continuing to improve every single year. Like I thought about, I recorded this last year and I'm like, I hope this one's better than last year's. Like I'm competing with my speaker meeting from last year. I want to have a better message to share every year. And I've, I've went through so many things in sobriety now. I've went through having two kids born. I've went through my business blowing up and making me a big deal online. And I've went through it failing and being in the worst financial situation of my life. I went through my mom falling off her horse and almost dying. I went through my mom not wanting to live anymore and going from someone who supported me to someone who cursed me constantly. And all I worked through that with Ty and with my sponsor. And you know, they told me about where they, what they'd done and worked through with their mothers. And Ty's like, call your mother by her real name. And if she's not in a good place, that'll really piss her off. And that'll push her over the edge. So I called my mom up and said, hi, Kathy. What the fuck are you doing? How dare you call me Kathy? And I mean, you know, she was in a place she didn't want to live in. She was hurting, and that's all she had to give. And I was able to lovingly separate from my mom for a month. And now we have a better relationship than ever. I've seen things I, my life today is better than I ever would have fantasized about before. I mean, I play video games for my job is how I earn my income. I have two wonderful kids. I have the same wonderful wife and we have a better relationship than ever. I have great relationships with almost everybody in my life and the ones I don't actually get me a little excited and curious like, hmm, you're different. You're different than the rest and I actually like that. And I hope by sharing this today that no matter where you're at, you get a sense that a life better than you can even imagine at this moment is possible. That you might not even be able to fantasize or picture how good it could get. And in fact, if I could look at one major defect throughout my life, it's, it's a failure to set my sights high enough. A failure to aim as high as is possible. I mean, I used to just aim like, well, I hope I can just get by today and not cause any trouble. Like, and I've progressively like my sites today I want to go I want to be the ambassador for earth and take a spaceship for faster than light uh, a faster than light spaceship to go to another planet like that's where I'm aiming at today because if I don't get there so what you know that's that's what's possible in my mind today because from what I've already seen anything's possible so thank you all for being here today love you all and thank God for another day sober